So 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 1 through to chapter 28, verse 2. And this is the word of the Lord. And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing, for, nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape the, to the land of the Philistines. And Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. Then David arose and went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. So David dwelt in Achish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelites, and Abigail, the Carmelites, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favour in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. And David and his men went up and raided the Jeshurites, the Gerzites and the Amalekites. For those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away sheep, the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. Then Achish would say, where have you made a raid today? And David would say, against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of the Jehomalites, or against the southern area of the Kenites. David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did. And thus was his behaviour all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, he has made his people Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore, he will be my servant forever. Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered, together, gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, You assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. So David said to Achish, Surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Therefore I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. Thus far the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we come now to study your word, we thank you for the freedom and the ease with which we can read it. Yet we know that there is more to understanding your word than simply reading and knowing what each individual word means. We pray, therefore, that your spirit would work within each one of us, granting us wonderful, refreshing spiritual knowledge of you through our time spent in this passage today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, right now... We are, it might be a relief to some of you, on the final stretch of 1 Samuel. We've been here for quite a while. As we get into this, as we finished off from last week, perhaps there's a sense in the air, finishing off chapter 26, of a, a calmness within the land of Israel. As we, as we touched on in the children's talk, David has been asked by Saul to return home with him. We didn't touch on that part. 
But David's just been asked to return home with Saul to the place where Saul lives. Return to his courtly position. That's a pretty positive sign. Saul and now 3,000 of his men have been made publicly and irrefutably aware of the fact that David is not actually trying to murder Saul. We know there was a lot of courtly intrigue suggesting that David was trying to steal the throne away from Saul, but it's very public, very obvious knowledge now that that is not David's intent. If you hadn't just heard this passage we read out or were unfamiliar with this part of the narrative of Samuel, you might be thinking coming into this, we're at a good place for Israel. The tension that's been there since chapter 16 between Saul and pretty much anyone else who looks like a power figure seems to be evaporating. The transition from Samuel to Saul has been rocky, but perhaps the transition from Saul to David is looking a lot smoother now that we've dealt with this misunderstanding of, does David want to kill me from Saul's perspective? Sadly, that's not the case as we continue, though. Saul, we saw last week, made mistakes over and over again. Today I've told of the sermon, history repeats itself because David does something. He makes a mistake that he's made before. History repeats itself. We aren't quite at that point of peace within the land of Israel. We're getting close in the narrative. We're getting closer, but we aren't quite there yet. We aren't there yet because history is repeating itself. This morning we've got only two points. Uh, The first one is provision amidst panic. As we look at this chapter today, uh, the start of it won't come as any surprise to anyone who's been with us for the last three weeks. I've mentioned the first part of chapter 27 verse 1 a few times that David said in his heart, Surely I'm going to die by Saul's hand. David somehow has come to the realisation, he's made the recognition that even though Saul has said that he is not going to kill him, there is still great risk to his life. And as we see in 27 verse 4, David was right to know that Saul was still after him because it wasn't until Saul knew that David was out of Israelite lands that he finally gave up his pursuit. Somehow David knew this, whether it was just wisdom, whether he had a word from the Lord regarding this. We don't know, but David said in his heart, Saul is going to kill me. That's as far as we've got so far, working through 1 Samuel. In many ways, we could look at the start of that verse, 27 verse 1, that that first sentence we've seen a few times, and be encouraged by the wisdom that David shows here. The discernment, the insight the ability to understand what's happening in the land of Israel. However, David is very much just a man. He is a manly man. He is a warrior man, but he is just a man. And the commendation for the wisdom of the first sentence sort of begins to fall away a little bit by what David goes on to say within his heart. Saul's trying to kill me, What am I going to do? How am I going to respond to this situation? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to run away to live with the Philistines. What a great idea, hey? But I'm not just going to run away myself and live with the Philistines. I'm going to take 600 of my men and their families 
into a land which is opposed to God and his people. This is where we start off this morning. And when I say this is history repeating itself, while David didn't have the families or his men with him back in chapter 21, in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, David made the same mistake there too. He knew that Saul was jealous of him. And rather than turning to God and seeking God's counsel for his safety, David trusted his own, his own knowledge. Just as in chapter 21, David saw a situation that was heading south. David saw a situation that was heading further and further south. And while we might be able to understand his sheer exhaustion of probably years on the run by this point, he trusts his own cunning and his own wisdom. And in trusting his own cunning and his own wisdom, he seems to do something foolish because the big question we should be asking is, what makes him think this will end any differently this time? That there's nothing to suggest this will finish any differently this time. Verse 1, David thinks it in his heart. Verse 2, he gets his 600 men and they could truffle off down the road to Philistine, specifically to the region of Gath where Goliath came from. Not a particularly safe place. We see there that Achish was the ruler. And we also see in those first few verses, the author specifically note not only the men's family who go with him, but he notes also David's two wives specifically. It's not a great start to this chapter. It's not a particularly wonderful representation of faithfulness from David right here. In fact, it's not even a remotely good representation of faithfulness. Now, when it comes to, to Achish, some commentators think that it's quite possible this is a different Achish than the, the fellow we met six chapters ago. Perhaps Achish was a title rather than a name. We're not entirely sure. Now, they suggest that because of the specific word choices the author uses to introduce him and also his father as well. We could debate that backwards and forwards, but there's been people with PhDs who have done that, so I'll just leave it there. If you want to research it, feel free. Whether it is or not, the main thrust of the text is that David has gone here. There's also suggestions, perhaps David received an invitation from Achish to come down to Gath and live there. Again, we don't have anything definitive to say one way or another about that. What we do know about Achish for sure, though, is that this is a pagan ruler of a pagan people who have as recently as the last few months attacked Israel. They do give David refuge. They do give him and his men safety. And as we touched on in chapter 21, this was an ancient Near East way that princes would often deal with other people from, or particularly powerful people from a, a competitive nation's court, was it to remove an advantage from them, in this case to remove an advantage from Saul, will be to give safety to David, to give protection to him. So they're following a, a, a courtly norm of the day. Now tie all that back into Israel. Chapter 25, verse 1, Samuel died. Chapter 27, verse 1, confirmed by chapter 27, verse 4, 
Saul, the king, is still intent on murdering a faithful man. Israel are in desperate need of a clear, visible, present, godly ruler. And David, while overall he is a good, quality, solid, godly dude who does make mistakes, he is just a man, he is panicked and he has left Israel. He is removed from God's people the good counsel that he could have offered to them. He should be with his people. He should be in the place that God had directed him to be back in chapter 22, verse 5, but he is hiding with the Philistines. And he hides with the Philistines for 16 months, for one year and four months. That is a long time. He is not with God's people for a very long time. Last week with Saul, we saw the the foolishness that it is to continue to disbelieve in God. Here we see that, sadly, it's possible for even a believer to act foolishly. Gordon Ketty has this to say about the situation. He says, Something cracked in David's mind, and from the moral victory over Saul, he plunged into doubts. From the moral victory over Saul, Saul and 3,000 men have just been told and shown And given irrefutable evidence, no, David does not want to kill the king. That is an incredible moral victory to immediately just plunge into doubts. And what makes this even sadder is that last week we read David say to Saul that if it's men encouraging you to kill me, Saul, then what those men have done is that they've driven me out of Egypt, out of Israel. They've driven me into the service of other gods. They've driven me out of the inheritance of the land that God has given his people Israel way back when they entered the land. If this is men counseling you, Saul, to kill me, your men have caused you and themselves have been party to driving one of God's people away from God, away from the blessings of God. But now by choice, David does the very thing he lamented over being forced upon him. By choice, David went to live with people who served other gods. By choice, David left the land that was the inheritance for God's people. We don't see him worshipping other gods and we presume that he did not worship other gods. But he sure isn't trusting the one true God very much right now. It's panic. It's panic. I've entitled the first point provision amidst panic and right now you might be thinking we're seeing a lot of David's panic. Where's the provision? What provision could there possibly be here? How is God still providing for Israel? How is God still providing amazingly even for David? Well, I think we see that in three places. Firstly, David returns to Gath. This region who has killed their greatest warrior. He's not someone who you see in the street and you meet happily there. Public enemy number one in the eyes of the people. But he's in this place again. This place where he went to previously and 
committed what's described as an intolerable insult against himself. He's not very well liked here, but he goes back there and is allowed to live there for a year and four months. Can we say God is not protecting David in that? It is remarkable that he is allowed to go there. Interesting, God isn't mentioned once in this chapter, chapter 27. But we see his hand working behind the scenes, don't we? The second evidence of God's provision is that David went to Achish and he said, why should I be here in the city? Why should I be in the royal city? If you can give me a town or something like that, that would be really good for me and my men. And Achish gives him the city of Ziklag. Which, oh yeah, in case a whole city, that's good, but what does that really mean? In this second evidence of God's provision in giving this city, there's actually two points of provision here. Spiritually, this sheltered David and his men from the pagan worship that permeated every aspect of life in the royal city. They were removed from immediate daily interactions with pagan worship. God looked after them in this. And secondly, within the second point, is that Ziklag was a really important place for Judah. Back when God told the people of Israel what they were going to take, what would be theirs when they took possession of the land, the city of Ziklag was allocated to the tribe of Judah. When they came into the promised land, as we've seen a few times in our Joshua Bible studies, they didn't quite take everything that God told them to take. Ziklag is one of those cities. But here we have a man of Judah, David, given a city that was allotted to the tribe of Judah. And it remained with with Judah forever. They didn't take it in the conquest, but now God is even providing for his people and giving them this city. And thirdly, the third point of provision, while this does require us to step back and have some sort of assumed knowledge of the things that are going to happen in the chapters to come, while it is absolutely wrong that David is absent, God seems to allow for David's absence from Israel for a time because it seems to spare David and his men from the terrible things that Israel are about to go through. I don't want to spoil the later chapters, so I'll leave that little point there. But as we look at this, we do see God's provision even amidst David's panic. Perhaps in your life, you feel as if you've strayed. Perhaps in your life, you feel as if panic has resulted in not doing what God wants, and perhaps that's true. This should serve as some encouragement to us that just as Jesus says in John chapter 6, that all those who the Father gives to me will never be lost. They won't be taken out of my hand. When we stray, we do need to recognize it. When we panic and trust our own wisdom rather than turn to God, we need to listen to people who will tell us this and we need to come back from, to the Lord. And we come back to the Lord who will never let one of his sheep wander forever. We should rejoice in God's provision. 
If you, we're feeling shocked looking at what David does here by his doubts and his plummet into them right here, we should be shocked. But we should also realise that we do the same thing ourselves. That we often go from those moral victories or various victories that God grants us to just plunging into our doubts. There is a lesson here for us to not trust our wisdom, but to trust God. Even if we think the writing is on the wall, even when that panic feels as if it's the only thing we can do, know that we have a God who can and does and will provide for what we need. Secondly, this morning, though, we do see David fighting for survival. So the first seven verses of chapter 27 show us what, uh, what David, or why David did what he did in going to the Philistines. It shows the reception of the Philistines, but it doesn't show us what David did while he lived with them. And chapter 7, verse 8 through to chapter 28, verse 2, touch on that. Works through some of the things that David did while living in Ziklag for the 16 months that he did. He fought. He fought, presumably, a lot of battles. He would go out and he would fight and Achish would say to him, where did you raid today? Now it seems as if this was a fairly common question that Achish was asking him, where did you raid today? Seems to be a very common part of David's life. He was literally fighting for survival. Because for him to maintain shelter in Gath, he had to prove his worth to the ruler. Last time he tried to act insane and it didn't end, out, end up very well for him, did it? He's thrown out. He knows he has to try and prove his worth if he's going to be there by his own cunning. Where did you raid today? I'll prove to these Philistines that I'm worth protecting. I'll tell them what they want to hear. I was raiding the southern parts of Judah. Think about that for a second. David, a man of Judah, claiming to have raided parts of Judah. That's concerning. It's a lie. History is repeating itself again, not just in what David does in running away, but his return to dishonesty to cover up his shortcomings. I raided the southern parts of Judah. I raided the southern parts of the Jehamalites or the Kenites. And we see all this in verse 10. From a Philistine perspective, this is good. Let's keep giving this guy protection because he is fighting our enemies for us. He's fighting his own people. His own people must surely despise him and abhor him. And when he's not fighting his own people, he's fighting the other enemies of the Philistines. David tells him this is what he's been up to. And in verse 12, we're told that Achish, he, he believed him. But there's a problem with this. As I said, it's lying. If you look at verses 8 and 9, where David was fighting does not line up with what he says in verses 10 to 12. David did not raid the southern parts of Judah. He doesn't raid the southern parts of the other two places mentioned there. Say it again. History is repeating itself. His history of lying is repeating itself. He is returning to deceptiveness. 
is downright dishonest. Perhaps we look for some good in what David's doing here. He wants to stay alive. He needs to stay alive for Israel. Let's let him get away with this, perhaps we say. Second point could be, well, he's fighting people who, the tribes mentioned here, people who are meant to be kicked out of the promised land. They're meant to be removed. Surely that's him just doing God's will and giving an understandable explanation to this pagan ruler to keep doing what he's doing. But David's dishonest. On one hand, it is. It's good that he's doing what Israel should have done so long ago. Even the severity of not leaving any witnesses lines up with that. But he's not leaving anyone left alive. He's not out of faithfulness to God. It's to protect himself. It's so that no one will go to Achish and tell him what he's been up to. It's about self-preservation. It's not about being faithful to God. He's sinning every time he lies about what he's done. He's doing something really messy or trying to make it look good. Again, perhaps we look at David and, and shake our heads more. We should be concerned that the Lord's anointed and the future king of Israel is acting like this. We should be. We should be very concerned. But once more, we shouldn't assume a hypocritical seat of judgment in this, should we? We can say what's right and wrong because we have God's word, but don't we make the same sort of mistakes over and over again? How often has God made a way for you to do something and then a day, a week, a month or whatever time frame it is later, we're worried about our abilities so we try and cover for our shortcomings rather than just turn to God? This is something that I relate to. Just before Anna and I had moved to Canberra, I just finished up a ministry role with the church. I had a Bachelor of Theology and no other degree. I had no other experience. And we were praying if God wanted us to be in ministry that we'd take whatever door he opened up for us. A door opened up for us to go to Canberra. It wasn't long before I was panicking about how I was going to manage the move. What can I do in this situation? How can I cover up for my feelings of inadequacy? I forgot to ask God for wisdom. At times, I tried to go it alone. So often we do the same sorts of things that David does and our history repeats itself. Now going back to David though, there is a question here of how long will this dishonesty hold up? Now the cat doesn't get out of the bag this morning. In a few chapters, things do come to an abrupt end between David and the Philistines again. There's a a severing of that partnership fairly quickly there. Perhaps we're thinking God's provision has allowed for David to do whatever he wants and there are no consequences for sin, therefore we ourselves can do whatever we want to do. That's why we included chapter 28 verses 1 and 2 in our reading this morning. The Philistines prepared to go to war again. 
They prepared to go to war, not against one of their other enemies outside of Israel. They prepared to go to war against Israel. Because David has lied about attacking Judah, because Achish thinks that all of Judah, all of Israel must despise David by now, he gets David to line up with his men among these pagan forces preparing to attack God's people. It's on the verge of disaster. We finish chapter 28, verse 2, with things really on the verge of disaster because David is not just there with them, he's a chief guardian. Whether David plans some sort of further deception to get out of this, whether he was planning a sick day in advance, a stomach bug the morning of the battle, we don't know. We finish here with the future king of Israel marching, having been given a position of command with God's enemies against God's people. Perhaps we see God's provision and think God's provision allows us to do whatever we want and it will all work out fine, but there are consequences for sin. God continues to provide for his people, but there are consequences for sin, aren't there? And it's not just David, it's his men as well being dragged into this. Saul, in verse 4, had stopped chasing him. David received the city of Ziklag, which the Jews should have inherited. They should have taken in the conquest. David is given safety. His men are given safety. His men are protected from the pagan worship that was taking place in the royal city of Achish. God is providing. We see God's provision so clearly here, but there is so much of great concern in this chapter, isn't there? David's panic and just bailing on Israel. David lying. David not seeking God's counsel. David relying on his own counsel instead. Where is all of this going in 1 Samuel? What is going to happen with the rule of Israel? There's no more judges, there's kings, and it's not looking good on that front at this point. We find out more later as we continue through 1 Samuel. But for now, for us, having read this, we should see that it should be our continual, fervent prayer that we continually seek God's wisdom in every single decision that we make. How could we expect things to end any better than David? There's no reason why things would end better for us ignoring God's counsel than it does for David here. We should not neglect God's word. We should not neglect God's people. For David, things are the way they are at this point at the end of chapter 28 verse 2 because he has neglected God and he has neglected God's people. Now while what we learn from this isn't 
just about avoiding consequences. It's right that we seek to avoid the consequences for sin, isn't it? Not by avoiding the consequence, but by avoiding the sin. To live holy lives. If that's how you feel, then we should take this negative example that David sets for us here to to encourage us in how we should live. Meekly, humbly, willingly and joyfully in the ways of the Lord. Thankful for everything that he's given us. Trusting that just as he has provided, he will provide. Pray that in our lives that we might have this meekness, this humility, this willingness, this obedience, this joyfulness fostered and grown by the work of the Holy Spirit. And pray that as these things grow in us, that the Lord might graciously protect us from having the painful experience of having a history with sin repeat itself over and over again. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this chapter that we've read, chapter and a bit we've read today. We see much in here that concerns us and we see many of our own failings right there alongside David's. We pray that you would, that you would grant us true wisdom in all that we do. We pray that we would not panic because we know that we have a God who is bigger than anything we can face. We pray that we would always hold to you that we would hold fast to the path that you have set us on and that you would keep our steps along that path. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.